Welcome to Failing Forward. We have a really exciting episode today. So Crystal, can you please introduce yourself for our audience? Hi, everyone. And thank you, Emily. My name is Crystal Simeone. I am based in Nairobi, Kenya, and I am the director of the Naui Afrofem Collective. And we work on a pan-African feminist deconstruction and reconstruction of macro-level economic policies and narratives. The first question I have for you today is, why is it important for us to talk about failure? I think failure is one of those things that seems really scary for a lot of people in this world that really puts success on pedestals. I don't even know if the word should be failure, but I think it's a good part of how we learn and how we make progress. And sometimes it's an indicator of like, that's not a way to go. And maybe we should reroute our paths and, and our work in different ways. So I think it's like one of those scary things that people like to stay away from. But I think it's important to be brave enough to confront it, to unpack it, to understand it and sit with it a little bit to make things better. And, and that's the whole point of the work that most of us do is to to be iterative in the way that we work and to to have the processes feed back into each other to make sure that we're getting better as we go. And tell us a little bit about the context you operate in. We operate in a context that is uh, very masculine and often very white. The space and world of macro level economic policies has been dominated by whiteness and maleness a lot. And even on the continent, it can be very male and very technical sounding. So very few African women have been in the space. That number is growing for sure, but there's still so much work to make sure that the pipeline is growing. And so there's a need for more resourcing, partnerships, and just all of us getting into, into the space. And part of that is actually failing a lot. Like we try one thing, it doesn't work out. Okay. Let's figure out if, you know, we have a one-week training course, hoping that that will spark interest in, in the field of economic policy. That might not be enough. And so maybe let's think about a full years fellowship, for example. Maybe that will help. And so it's a very iterative process, but also we're in the business of dreaming and imagining a new world. And that means you can't do that work if you have a predetermined endpoint. And so working within the realms of donor funding and making sure you're raising resources to fund the work, but at the same time are suspending or at least trying to suspend concepts of what success should look like because we don't know is a hard space to be in. But I think one that is important to travel if we're really going to be changing the work and not being thinking about it as finding sustainable ways to keep the sector alive. At the end of the day, we're all trying to work ourselves out of jobs, to be honest. And when you think about that system, you know, the system we all operate in, what are some of the biggest challenges or some of the biggest difficulties you see in that space that we're all facing? The industrialization of the sector. Um, a lot of the time, it's just become work without the politics. And I think it's so important to always root the work that we do in the politics and, and the why we're doing it. It's for it's for people, it's for dignity, it's for people to live in joy and dignity really at the end of the day. And so what delivers to make sure that that happens? And sometimes we get so caught up in processes and policies and, and ways of working that we kind of lose sight for what all of these things are about. And that makes me a little bit sad, actually very sad, many a time angry. And I spend a lot of my time fighting back those kinds of things because things can be a lot easier. But because we've done this 
over and over for so long, it feels like that's how we should do it. And I sometimes call it the performance of busyness. Like we must always look like we're so busy doing things. And there might be easier way to do things, but we need, again, bravery seems to be a theme of this conversation. We need to be brave enough to suspend how we think things should be done and begin to explore what could be done and what should be done. And what's the easiest way to attain, at least in the work that I do, liberation for so many people that are that need it. So I often hear people talk about the context of easy or efficient. And when they say, well, you have to, this is the easier way in parentheses, you could say for me. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be easier for the people we say we're serving. How do you think about finding that space where the easy way is what's delivering the best, not for us as the people in the work, but for the people we say the work is for? This word efficient, right? And it's this in the space that I exist, we're pushing back on privatization of public services, for example, and what they couch as the reason why private services should be implemented or used is because they're efficient. But like you're saying, efficient for who and who's benefiting at the end of the day. And so I think, like I said, if you're always going back to what your purpose is and what you're doing the work for and who you're doing the work for, with and behalf of, that begins to give you a different angle from how you see things. And sometimes the work is for us to do the more complicated work so the people that we need to be working with have it easier. And that that work is meaningful, is easier to navigate, um, gets money down to people that need it in a way that makes sense for them. I'm constantly deconstructing. And this means deconstructing policies, ways of working, ways of organizing, ways of legitimizing the work that we do, ways of fundraising, all of those things. And I think for us and for organizations like CARE with some, some of this power, I think the onus is on us and, and CARE to take a little bit more of a burden to do the more complicated things on the back end to make sure it's easier for people that we're working with and alongside. You talked about bravery and that being an important theme. What are some of the things you wish organizations like CARE were willing to be more brave about? Less talking and analyzing about what needs to be done because you you all know what needs to be done and just, just getting it done. So there's voices internally in CARE that I know, like most big organizations, um, know what needs to be done. So it's giving those people the space to, to speak, but also the goodwill to implement the things that they talk about. To be brave enough to step out of the mold of what an international organization is perceived to be and what they should and shouldn't be saying in spaces, what they should and shouldn't be doing and how they should and shouldn't be practicing things and really questioning. I think you should be brave enough to get the operations people in your organizations to think a little bit more politically and have them grounded in like a politics of justice. So what does it look like for a procurement policy to be fair and equitable? Yeah, the politics cannot just sit in the programmatic spaces and departments. It needs to run across. And there's something that I constantly say, which is if you can't be trusted with the small things, you can't be trusted with the big things. So living, really living the politics across organization, I think is really, really important. How you treat people, what policies you have in place, how do you center care? And from, from the feminist movement, that's a big thing. And considering that that is the very name of the organization, there's a lot of pressure to make sure that there's a centering of care in how you, you move through the world and how you juggle your positions of power and how you don't step on smaller voices and open doors and 
hold doors open for voices that need to be heard in certain spaces that organizations like CARE are able to go through and, and access. But it also means, you know, recognizing with CARE that there's a seeding of power that you will need to be doing at some point. And what does that look like? And are you comfortable enough to do that? And that takes a lot of bravery, a reduction of resources, power centers moving or dismantling, actually. Yeah, so there's a lot there. One of the things you talked about is the importance of thinking about this in operations and processes. So not just on the program side of things, but in the way we get things done. What are some examples either of, of ways you've seen that fail in the past that the sector needs to get better at or great practice examples that you think we all need to adopt? Yeah, so we've been really looking for feminist procurement guidelines, finding very many. So we're trying to work them from scratch and see. I know there's a few other feminist organizations that are also beginning to to work on on their own. I'm sure there's some that we just they're not in our purview. So if there's anyone listening and would like to share feminist organizational frameworks, please do. But I'll give you an example. We were working with a series of letters written by a diversity of women across the continent. And one of them was an undocumented domestic worker in South Africa. And we were trying to pay her for the time that she used for this work. But she had no bank account. She was not in the, in the formal system. And the finance office was sort of stumped as to what, like, what does this mean? And it took them such a long time to figure out what they did. They did a long convoluted thing. They had to sign an MOU with an organization in Cape Town to like get the money to her. But that made me think a lot about who are we serving if you're outside of formality? we can't engage with you. What does that mean for social social justice organizations that are pushing a certain narrative, a certain politics, but then on the flip side, our organizational frameworks don't meet the very same people that we are supposed to be working with for and alongside. And so maybe it's to work with the auditors too, to come up with, you know, systems that ensure that there's transparency and accountability and rigor because that's important. But doing it in a way that sees people where they are, doesn't alienate or exclude people and make it easier for them to engage rather than it figuring out ways to make it easier for us to prove transparency and accountability upstream. But alongside that, I'm slowly learning that the work on operations, the processes that guide the work are as important and as political. For so many organizations, that bit seems to get lost. That's the professional, expert, industry-based part of the work. And the standards that cannot be questioned, and they, you know, you must fit in whatever you're doing into their standards, which have already been set. And they make sure that we run efficiently, there's your word again, and transparently and accountable. That idea of transparency and accountability is so rooted in transparency and accountability to the donor, to the, the person who gave the money in the first place. We know those aren't the only people in the system. How do we build ways to be more accountable and transparent to, for example, the woman you were trying to pay, to the people we are working with and also the ones we say we're serving? Yeah, that's a tough question. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. <laughs> I think that's where the likes of CARE and big, bigger organizations who seem to have louder voices I'm not so sure that's how it should be, but currently it is to push back on like donor communities and partner organizations that are equally as big as, as care. 
to begin to set new standards. And you're able to do that because you can attract the financing for it, the resourcing for it, but you can also set aside the bandwidth and time to think about what that could look like. And in that thinking space is something, you know, you could come up with frameworks, toolkits, uh, I don't know what to call them, that you can share with other people, other organizations that are too small to have the luxury to think about these things, because we're all just fighting for survival and keeping the doors open, but also in collaboration with, because this idea that the big organizations will do the thinking for you and then just implement it, right, is also very, very problematic. So how do you collaboratively think? Make sure that there's resources moving into that space of thinking, I think is really, really important, but also influencing donor community resource people and communities uh, to think differently. I think that's important, and I think you guys have to be brave enough to question those things and not just take them as is, because you also have the power to implement them as is. You'll have whole departments for different things. You mentioned a few times this idea of expertise. One of the best pieces of advice anybody ever gave to me in my own career was let go of the idea of yourself as an expert. You're in customer service. How do we start shifting some of those ideas of of expertise when they are getting in our way? I think things are slowly shifting and I can feel it. So I'll be very honest. There's a few more, especially foundations that are moving resources to the global South or the majority world. And I can feel a little bit of a panic of the bigger organizations like, okay, where, where does that leave us? We were always the ones with the capacity, the technical expertise. And I can speak for the continent because that's where I work. That's what I know. That's my the landscape that I that I work in, that capacity is such a lie. And I'm so triggered every time somebody says capacity and capacity building and my favorite capacitate. We just have to stop. It's a lie. We have to stop. And it takes a confronting of the big organizations, a confronting of this as an issue and to pull back and, and to check themselves as well. It also means sitting with a very uncomfortable idea that maybe you have to share out some of the resources and maybe there needs to be a little bit more listening because people actually know what they need done in the spaces that they work in. And what does it mean to have an organization like Kara's voice in a room, a smaller organization? What are, what are the power dynamics there? Those are important questions to ask and to, and to take time on. At the same time, I think Care has been doing, at least from what I can see, has been doing some really deep thinking. And so now has the beginnings of answers or the beginnings of ideas of what pathways to take. And back to this brave idea, I think it's now just being brave enough to just try and not to be afraid of failing. We love to analyze. We get so excited about analyzing and I am as much at fault as anyone else. What would you say to somebody to get over that, to just go in and get your toes wet? What's your biggest piece of advice there? We're at a crossroads and we've been at a crossroads, I guess. The last two, two and a half years started off with me having so much hope about, you know, the world is going to be organized differently and maybe we actually care about each other. And those those ideas were quickly shattered into a million pieces. But what it did show me is that there are things that we thought were impossible that actually are. I live in Nairobi and the, the airport was closed down for weeks. I never thought that would ever happen, that there would no there would be no planes and no flights ever, like coming in and out of the country. So the, this world that we thought has to be a certain way, actually things can happen and your wildest dreams actually can happen. And it opened up in a really weird way, this idea in my head of possibility as well. 
if these possibilities can happen for bad things and it can happen for good things too. And sometimes you don't have a full picture of where you're going to land, but being bold enough to just take the first step, knowing that that in itself is success, if you're thinking about it, I think is is one way to look at it is to reposition what your success points look like and redefine what those mean and not necessarily work towards this perfect end point because it's not going to be perfect, right? We've been trying for so many years. We've made some great strides, some not so great strides, but the great strides have been because we've had to reassess the paths that we're taking and said maybe, I don't know, maybe the pink shoes weren't working well. Let's try the blue ones. It's just taking the first step and building a different narrative of what success looks like. I know one of the things that is always lurking in the back of people's minds, certainly for me, is this idea of risk. And there's the organizational risk and the procurement risk. For me, the risk I'm always concerned about is the, but what if I make it worse? What if in failing, I harm people? And that's different than whatever comes because I got my forms wrong or I didn't follow the process exactly correctly. How would you tell people to grapple with that Or how would you tell them to build in signals to make sure we can shift fast enough if we're on that path? It's very easy for me for this answer. I think it's always walking alongside communities and people. They will tell you, you guys are really messing up here. Um, they will always tell you, but that means making sure that you build relationships based on trust, mutual accountability, and mutual respect, and not coming to these relationships with a power differential and a power dynamic there. And that takes a long time. For me, I found the work that I do more and more is really based on relationships and finding human relationships with people, breaking bread together. And sometimes we forget about that and we're like, okay, let's get into a conference room, have a work plan up. What is, what are we all going to do? Da, da, da. But you, I can't really trust you if I don't know you, right? And like, I need to be able to have laughed with you to some extent, get a feeling of who you really are, who Emily is as a human being. Like, does she like, does she have a cat? Like, is she a plant person? What makes you tick? And sometimes we lose sight of that and just cover it up in work. But the work that we're doing as a feminist, say the The personal is a political, and this is deeply personal and deeply political work. So building community, uh, building relationships, and working alongside, not over, communities and people, because they're the ones that are going to be signaling you um, if you're going the right way, or if you're not going the right way, or maybe you are going the right way, but we need to tweak this a little bit. So I'm a big believer in collaborative, collective work. I'd like to circle back. You said this whole narrative of capacity is a lie, which is such a powerful statement. And in a lot of ways, I would say it pushes against the collaboration you're just talking about of this. I have capacity that I am somehow going to hand over to you. Talk more about that. What do you want to see change in that space? I want to see so many things change. I want to see the idea of who gets to be the holders of knowledge, for example. Does it have to be a peer-reviewed journal paper for it to be seen as knowledge? Could it be a speech? Could it be a song? And because of that, it creates power centers. If you don't reference so-and-so researcher in your piece, then it's not like a good piece. And you can't reference my aunt or the tradeswoman down the road who has you know, whose lived experiences matter, what sort of data is seen as as better. And most times it will be statistics and numbers, quantitative data. But our lives really are not 
numbers. I mean, there's a part of it, but also our lives are stories and narratives and feelings and emotions, and that needs to count for something. And so this idea of what capacity is from a very, very narrow perspective, a very global North perspective is problematic. And I think needs to be unpacked, broken down, dismantled, maybe even burnt down. Organizations like CARE who are doing some deep thinking around positionality of themselves and the importance of the work that they're doing and the impact of the work that they're doing, I think could have a role to play in pushing those questions in the spaces that you exist in. Who gets to say what can be and who gets to build worlds and our new worlds based on knowledge, I think is really something that I think about a lot. Capacity cannot be narrowed down to the way that we understand it. It can be in multiple forms and there needs to be space to create different ways. So I don't think of it as capacity building. Sometimes I'll use the word nourishing because sometimes if you're planting something, sometimes all it needs is some extra fertilizer or manure or some water. You're not really telling it how to grow. You're just adding some things that make it healthier. And that's that's how I think about it. If you could wave a wand and change a few things in the system, what's at the top of your list? If you could redesign it from the ground up, what would it look like? I would really like a feminist audit company, to be honest, <laughs> who ask different questions and look at finance and back-end books in a completely different way because everyone else is so scared of like oh but the auditors coming what are they gonna say we can't you know everything is all but the auditors that's what I would use my what magic wand to do and then I, I guess I would just make sure that there's more money there's less money sitting with a very big organizations and there was more of a sharing of resources to actual movements in a way that's not stifling and in a way that doesn't tackle them too much and part of that is just responding to the needs of donors in a format that is complicated, unnecessary, exclusive, and a barrier to making sure that the work does. And I've seen examples of movements that were doing such great work. And the moment that they needed to attract some funding to grow their work, it means that you have to fit in a certain formulation to receive the money. And that just destroys their soul. So we really have to have a rethink of how we distribute financing and resources. We need to rethink ways in which we're bureaucratically violent to people that are trying to do that work. Part of that is really going back to what is this all for and who are we trying to, to work with and change? What is it that we're trying to change and who can, who's, who's actually doing the work? If you could give advice to people who are listening to this podcast, which is mostly people who work in the sector, who are professionals in the sector, if you could give them one or two pieces of advice, what would it be? Don't have this as a full-time job, I think. I think we need to, to occupy our minds with something outside of the work that we do every day. The work that we do at Naui has associates that do very different things. And they will come into some of our reflection sessions and ask some really wild questions that I had never thought of. And that really keeps me on my toes in the most simple ways, like sort of like, but why do we do that in that way? And sometimes it's almost impossible for me to answer. And the answers are usually that's kind of just the way it's done, but that's not good enough. And so more and more, I think we need to have one foot in a world that is not just consumed by this world of work that we do, because it's sort of become an industry and there's an industrial complex around, around the way that we work, around what we're working on. 
And I think we all need a little bit of a fresh injection from other spaces. And that speaks to the way that things have gone down very siloed rabbit holes. And I think we need to really fight to disassociate from that. And I don't know, be a part-time florist, do something completely different that brings fresh thinking, a fresh worldview to you, different questions. So we're not always just talking to each other in words that only we understand, in framings only we understand, peppered in all our acronyms that nobody else understands. Because that's a safe space. But the work that we should be doing is not cushy and safe sometimes. It's it's scary and and daunting, but it's as part of the work, really. I love that idea of cultivate unsafe space, cultivate space for discomfort and being pushed into things that are not what you do all day, every day. You've also talked a lot about hope and joy as part of this work. What are some things that make you hopeful or joyful as you do the work? Yeah, so like I was telling someone just today, the process, and I call it the bureaucratic violence of running an organization and dealing with donors and frameworks and reports and applications can be really, at least for me, is is really heavy and is really brings me no joy. But working alongside some really amazing African feminists who do the work and, and make the most beautiful things come alive in spaces that we curate that, you know, allow them to do the work that they need to do in the way that they want to do it brings me the most hope and joy and that there's so many people that I travel with shoulder to shoulder in the work that I do that think about the world so differently that are doing such different things from documenting healing practices of African women to documenting, you know, the stories of mothers and the care burden on them. Those things bring me joy that people still have the passion to do it, the interest to do it, and the the drive and the will to do it. I think I'm, I'm really in good company. And all it takes is for me to lift my head up from my laptop and have a conversation with any of these amazing women. And my joy comes back again. So there's good people doing really great work. And those communities are really special. The world's going to, I think we're going to be okay because we have some really great people doing some really important work. And if you had to sum up your main lesson in one sentence or two sentences, what would it be? To slow down, to have space to think a lot more, to stop doing a hundred activities and do fewer of them and do them well, to build relationships and build communities. But that happens in a very slow way. And that's for me, for sure, through COVID and through the last two and a half, three years of of the work that I do, that's been the hugest lesson is to slow down. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been lovely to get a chance to learn from you.